You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. You appreciate every author that comes in, all the work that went into the book. It's not, to me at least, it's not just an object that has arrived on our shelves. I kind of understand the process behind it and the number of years that went into it and the number of people that had their hands in it. People were really supportive um, in a strange way. They they didn't, uh, you know, it not unlike Portland up there, no one had heard of floating. Even when we first moved down here and we started talking to people about it, maybe one in 20 people would have had any idea what we were talking about. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Main Radio, show number 273, Read and Relax, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 11, 2016. The holiday season can be a busy time, and because of this, it is important to engage in activities that keep us happy and rejuvenated. Today we speak with owners of two new Portland businesses that provide opportunities for rejuvenation. Josh Christie, co-owner of this city's newest independent bookstore, Print, a bookstore, and James and Amy Harder of Float Harder Relaxation Center. Thank you for joining us. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Today it is my great pleasure to have in the studio again with me, Josh Christie. Josh is the co-owner of Print, a bookstore, a new independent bookstore in Portland on the East End. Josh is also an author of four books, most recently of Skiing Maine, a lifelong Mainer. Josh lives in Yarmouth with his wife, Katie. Thanks for coming back in again. Thanks so much for having me. So you've had some exciting things happen to you since the last time we interviewed you a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's been two books since then. So when I was on before, we were talking, I was with my father and we were talking about the Maine Outdoor Adventure Guide, which has since been published. Uh, and he and I wrote a second book together, Skiing Maine, which was just published this fall. And separate from all that, I'd left my position at Sherman's Books here in Portland to open my own independent bookstore. So that's a lot. How do you, how have you managed to kind of balance all those different things? Well, you mentioned in my bio my wife and uh, having a supportive spouse helps a lot. Um, and having a, a just a lots of energy, a, a thirst for drawing new things and, and creative things has, has really helped drive me. So this is something that um, you, you're you're in the middle of this interesting trend. So first we had small independent bookstores. Then we had these big box bookstores that came in and kind of gobbled up a lot of small independent bookstores. But you've been with Sherman's, and Sherman's obviously had its own really important stake and claim in the marketplace. But you've you've gone beyond that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're like going, you're, you're bringing the small independent bookstore new 
back again. Yeah, yeah. We're with print. We're the fourth uh, independent bookstore in Portland, along with Sherman's Longfellow and Letterpress. Uh, and if you want to include the greater Portland area, we have Bull Moose with books now. We have Nonesuch Books in South Portland. We have the Book Review in Falmouth. Uh, there's so many great small independent bookstores in the area, and it's really part of a larger trend nationally. If you look at the number of stores um, since 2011, I believe, there's more opening than closing every year. So there's a reaction after all the things you mentioned, the big box stores, and then Amazon and online bookselling after that, which seemed like they might be the, the death blow to independent bookstores. Um, after the recession, bookstores have really bounced back. So why? Why is that so? Uh, so many are really good at knowing their community, I think, is a big part of it. Um, you really are integrated in your town, and you act not just as a retail space, but also as a community space. Uh, there are things like author events and programming with schools and galleries and stuff like that that can't be accomplished by an online enterprise. You have to have a stake in your community. One of the things that I like the most about the independent bookstores I go to is um, the recommendations. Yes. I, I like finding, you know, a person on the staff who seems to have kind of a similar interest and be like, oh, that person recommends this book. And I read that book. I liked it. I'm going to choose this other one that this person recommends. Is that a big part of what you will be offering? Yeah, that's the same kind of stake that I was talking about. I mean, you really know that... You can look at a large either brick-and-mortar or a large online bookseller, and they have everything, or they can argue that they have everything, but there's really not a great deal of curation. It's just everything kind of at the same level or everything based on how much publishers are paying for advertising to lift their books up within the search algorithm or whether they're surfaced on a site or in a store. Whereas at an independent bookstore, we're really just driving sales by what our staff really likes. Um, we hired a lot of readers, everyone we hired at print, um, and my partner and I both have years of experience either in publishing or in bookstores um, and have a really diverse array of tastes, so we don't all read the same things. Um, and we really build our stock based on what our staff likes and our response from the community, which is why if you have like I said, four independent bookstores in Portland will all have different stock. There'll be some crossovers, but each will be reflective of the people behind that store and the people that work at that store. You're also the only bookstore on the East End. We are, yes. The only new bookstore. Carlson & Turner, the great antiquarian and used bookstore, is just up the block from us. But um, we felt like the growth going on in the East End, and Emily and I both have family that live up there. We felt like it was a community that would really support a bookstore and needed this kind of store, needed this kind of retail as the growth happened before it all became... You know, God love them, but restaurants and condominiums and stuff like that. I think a, a strong retail base is, is really important there as well. Yeah, it's, it's actually a fun neighborhood because they do have, they have Rosemont up there. They do have really wonderful restaurants. And it seems like um, even just down the block from where you are, there's a number of retail establishments that are doing kind of interesting things. Yep, yep. There's um, the knitting store. There's a couple gift shops. There's, again, Carlson and Turner. Um, just a lot of really cool spaces. So if your bookstore has its own flavor based on who you've hired and what would you describe that flavor to be? What do you what do you kind of what's the vibe you're putting out? We are kind of unabashedly progressive at the store. Um, it, that's certainly reflective in our staff and in the stock we have at the store. Um, we're also very event-driven. Um, we want to be really supportive of local authors in, in all kinds of different ways by, by what we do for programming at the store. 
Um, so those are the ways that are most reflective of the store. We're also, um, we want to be very unpretentious. We want to be welcoming to people no matter what they read. We don't want people to feel like there's a certain type of book they should feel embarrassed to ask about at the store or something like that. We want people to come in and, and try everything, get whatever they want to get. Um, and we're also super supportive of small presses. We have a dedicated small press section in our store. That means small presses in Maine, like Tilbury House and Island Port and places like that, but also on the national scale, Milkweed Editions and Melville House and some of the small presses from other parts of the country. What's important about small presses? Uh, the same thing, I think, independent bookstores. They're publishing voices that aren't necessarily as well known. Um, they can take more chances because they're they're doing smaller things. I think there's the idea behind a lot of larger publishers, the same as in the movie business that you need, or even the music business, you need a blockbuster, you need a sure thing, and that makes it much harder for them if they look at the P&L, look at that profit and loss sheet for what they're going to bring in for manuscripts. If something's not a sure thing, it's a much harder thing for them to take a chance on. But um, so many small presses are driven more by what their mission statement is, whether it's to publish poets or progressive work or people of color, um, whatever it is, they're driven by that more than just the profit. How, how has it been as somebody who has both worked with Sherman's but also now owns his own bookstore, how has it been to um, see the increased number of people who are self-publishing and how does that interact with the, the bookstore idea? It's been interesting. It's There's more books being published today than any time in history, and a big part of that is the self-publishing side of things. And it's been great as a democratizing force. Again, people that wouldn't necessarily have their books published otherwise are able to create a book. It does put a lot of, I don't want to say stress, but it does um, add a, a new dimension to buying for the store um, because each self-published book is essentially their own publisher. So if we're working with a sales rep for, say, Penguin Random House, we look at their catalog of thousands of books that are coming that season. We put in one order for those. We work with them for the shipping and the billing and all of that, whereas every self-published author, for the most part, has a book. So it's an independent invoice, it's independent shipping, it's independent all of that stuff. So it does add some complexity. Um, and there is also a gatekeeping aspect that that is, again adds another layer to our work because, again, pretty much anyone can self-publish a book, so there's not necessarily an editorial process behind it. So we need to look at it a little more closely to know if it'll fit well with our stock. Um, but on the other hand, there are things that are hyper-local, books about Portland, books about Monjoy Hill, books about our neighborhood that there wouldn't necessarily, with good reason, be a national market for, but it's something that we could find we could do really well with in our store. Because you've written and published yourself four books, you must have an interesting and unique, um, I guess, perspective on the creation of books and the marketing and selling of books. Yeah, it, you, you get a real sense of, you, you appreciate every author that comes in, all the work that went into the book. It's not, to me at least, it's not just an object that has arrived on our shelves. I kind of understand the process behind it and the number of years that went into it and the number of people that had their hands in it. Um, this is especially true of traditionally published books where you have the author, but also copy editors and developmental editors and publicists and cover designers and all of that that, that work together to create this final product. Um, so it, it does make it harder to dismiss books when they come into the store uh, or when we see them in a catalog. We kind of know what, what went into it. 
I've read, I've, I love to read, so I, I read books of all different stripes. And one of the things I've noticed about um, self-published books is that that there is not the same level of editing, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I, I don't, I'm not sure that many of us think about the importance of um, an editorial staff. Not many of us think about the fact that it takes many hands to actually get a product from point A to yes. point B. Yeah, it's um, something for me, a, a topic that often comes up when I talk with people that are considering how they're going to publish their book is they often bring up the fact that if they self-publish, they get X percent, you know, 80 percent or something like that of the sale price of each book. Um, whereas just to be totally frank, for most of the books I've had, they were all traditionally published and I get, you know, some somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, if that, of each book sold. Um, and having gone through the process, it's easy to understand that all that other percentage, it's not going to some you know, mustache-twirling, cigar-chomping editor that's just collecting money. It's going to all these different people that had a hand in the book. And the book wouldn't... My books wouldn't have sold as they did. They wouldn't have looked as good as they did. They wouldn't have been the product they were uh, without all these hands in it. So I appreciate wanting... Looking at a book as a singular thing and thinking, well, I wrote this, so I should get, you know, almost all of the profit that comes from it. But it, it really does come from a community that created a book. And I have appreciated. I mean, I've I've read self-published books that were very good and that mm-hmm. seemed okay and fine without the um, levels of editing that usually one has. And then I've read other self-published books that I've just been like, you know, there's so much of this that was good, and I think that if they had just had a good, even a good copy editor, you know, yeah. even someone who could find those apostrophes that were misplaced, or if they had some sort of content editor who could like just say, move those sentences around. Yeah. The flow is gonna improve if you do that. So I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting thing that, you know, artists we like to believe that we're all spontaneously creative and amazing at every part of this, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah, and it's certainly not to sound um, dismissive because, of course, there are traditionally published books that could use those same improvements that somehow made it through without having them made, and there's self-published books that are really excellent, and there's all kinds of different levels of cooperative publishing and um, different levels of independent presses that are somewhere in between those two extremes that we've kind of created in this conversation here. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just all kinds of different ways that a book can come to market now. And I think generally speaking, that's really good for the book market. It's good for us because we have a greater number of books that we can pick from. And it does make our job harder because we have to be more selective in what we're bringing in. But uh, at Sherman's and already at Print, some of our fe- best-selling books were, were locally published books or self-published books. Um, the mix was always, the list was always a nice mix of um, big presses, small presses, traditionally published, self-published. Um, yeah. So you have a book. You have a book about skiing. You mm-hmm. have the Maine Outdoor Adventure Guide. Yep. And you also have one about the Maine Beer Trail. Is that? Well, I have um, the two books I wrote before those. One is a large book published by Cider Mill Press in Kennebunkport and distributed internationally about stouts and porters, so just specifically those two styles. And then my first book was called Maine Beer, and it's a history of the brewing industry in Maine. Um, So history of brewing here in the state from the earliest European settlers up through Prohibition and modern-day brewing, and then a profile of every brewer in the state. 
um, at that time in 2013, which was, I think, 42 breweries, and now we're up to 89, so in the space of three years. So it's amazing how fast it's grown. So I was going to give you a ton of credit for being so prescient. Yeah. <laughs> that you were out there writing about this stuff as it was happening, and now it's like kind of like independent bookstores. Like Now it's like the sweet spot. Yeah, it's a, it's a book that came out at the right time. <laughs> I was lucky that it came out when it did because it was just kind of on the cusp of this big explosion of growth in brewing in Maine because, again, it's doubled in the space of three years from the number that had grown from when David Geary opened his brewery in the mid-'80s until 2013. I mean, the same number have opened in the last three years as it opened in those 25. So, so what is it that you think about um, yourself that has enabled you to tap into this greater something, you know, the fact that, oh, I'm going to write about beer. Oh, my gosh, beer is so, like, now it's so big, and I'm going to have this independent bookstore, and people are craving this. How are you? What's the... What's the gist of this here? What's the Magic Josh thing going on? Oh, wow. I wish I knew. A lot of credit goes to my dad, who worked in um, industries, again, doing the same kind of thing um, in his time when he was my age, which would have been the, you know, the 60s and 70s. He was doing advertising, and he owned Saddleback up in Rangeley. And he was the first person to partner with Hannaford Brothers to put coupons on the back of their receipts so that they could get a ski ticket, which now, you know, any supermarket you go to, you see coupons on the back of the receipts. It's just this idea of looking at a need that isn't being met or some cool creative idea that no one has had before. Um, you know, it's hard to say what the, the nexus or, or where creativity comes from, but hopefully it was just being um, raised to, to question things and, and look at whether things are being done in the best way they could or see if, you know, this is something that I really think is cool and important and, and want to support. And probably more often than not, you gave two examples of things that I was right about. I'm probably wrong far more often than I'm right, but... Um, you get to get behind the things that you really like, and sometimes society follows you and sees the same thing. Well, that's a really important point. And you are—you chose some things that you felt passionate about, that you actually wanted to spend the time researching and writing about, learning about, and writing about, and getting behind to market. Yeah. And I think that that's something that sometimes we're not sure that we want to take the chance to do. Yeah, I mean, it does take, you have to kind of banish fear from your mind if you're worried that it's something that isn't going to catch on, or if you're worried that you're wrong, it's very easy to convince yourself not to pursue something. I mean, people do that every day. They decide not to take the chance that they were going to take because it's safer to keep doing what they've been doing. Um, so you just have to take the leap sometimes. Well, sometimes I think we don't know what we don't know. So we we think, well, nobody's ever put something out into the world, so maybe there's no, nobody wants it. But right. if you don't put it out there, you won't know whether people really want it or not. Yeah, yeah, and someone else will figure out that they do, and they'll put it out there, so. Ugh, that's actually the worst. Yes. You think, oh, I should really do this, and then 10 years later you read, that's the book that I was going to exactly, write. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I guess that's sort of the, the lesson is, you know, if you think that, that something is going to be important, you need to kind of get behind it. Absolutely, yeah. So you've been um, you've been spending a lot of time writing, working in bookstores, creating this bookstore. How are you going to continue to balance? I'm assuming that as a writer, you're going to want to keep writing. Yeah. Um, well, it's a benefit to me. I can't speak to 
all I've really written in the past and all I really have any aspiration to do is write nonfiction, um, which is easier for me to wrap my head around. And having done it for uh, 10 years now, I have a decent idea of how to outline and schedule my time and structure pieces and stuff like that. I can't imagine how much energy it takes to write fiction and, and come up with these stories and edit and all of that. But... Um, Again, it, it, I think it mostly comes down to the fact that these things that I thankfully was right about and am passionate about are avocations. You know, I would be skiing and reading and, and drinking local beer whether I was writing about them or not. So it's in my spare time that I'm often pursuing these interests and then realize, oh, I could write about this. Or, oh, I want to say this thing about this beer, this thing about this hike. Um, so it... It's that blessing of it not feeling like work, I guess. So what is it that you currently are interested in that you're kind of noodling around and spending time doing? Right now, well, since the store opened uh, the day before Thanksgiving and we're headed into the holidays, that's kind of where all my mental energy is right now. Um, but I'll be writing ski columns for the Sunday Telegram all through the winter. And there's a couple places like Black Mountain up in Rumford that I haven't had a chance to visit in a couple of years that I'd really like to write about. Uh, you know, cool community-focused mountain that has a lot of side country and glade skiing, which are types of skiing that I really enjoy. So planning on going up there. And then once we get through the holidays at print um, and hit get a little more hopefully breathing room when we hit January, um, I'd really like to go back and look at either a revised edition or a second edition of my main beer book just because the market has doubled in Maine since it came out. Um, and it's a story that was so fun to tell and people are still interested in but is getting sadly out of date. I guess that's that's good. It seems like it would be yeah. kind of a fun thing to be able to look into is the is the beer scene. Yeah, again, that's the great thing is that it doesn't feel like work. I want to do it because I want to do it because I want to talk with these new brewers that have opened breweries or places that have expanded or places that have changed in the last three years um, and see what their stories are. I remember interviewing you and your father and what a... Um, big personality he had. Uh, I know he passed away in May, and I, I actually kind of felt like when I learned of this, I, it actually was, I, it felt like a loss, even though I had only yeah. met him for this interview. How have you been doing with that? It's been, you know, it's been hard. It was unexpected. He um, didn't have, although he was, you know, getting older, he didn't have any serious or at least imminent feeling health problems you know he ended up passing away from a, a rather large heart attack but um you know it was totally unexpected he was healthy and hiking and kayaking and all the stuff that he had done uh for years for decades um so it was a big shock and luckily well, not luckily but by just coincidence i had just about decided that we were going to open print um, a couple days before he passed away and I had gone up to visit my parents because it was Mother's Day weekend and I had told him about my plans for the store and stuff like that um, and then he passed away the next day um, so like I felt like I got to communicate this major change in my life to him which has given me a, a kind of a sense of you know, a sense of zen, a sense of calm around his passing. I mean, of course, I wish he was still here. But in a lot of ways, I feel like I got everything 
from him that he needed to give me or that he wanted to give me to to live my life um so you know it's it's cyclical we're in our first series of big major family holidays now since he passed away with thanksgiving and christmas and the end of the year um so that'll be tough but um you know he kind of lives on through my brother and i and our work um and our mom and yeah there is something very cool about the fact that he built his career and built his name in the ski industry and i've been lucky enough to do um some work in skiing but it's almost always in the shadow of of his name and his reputation here in the state of maine but i've built a reputation at least in new england in the world of independent book selling that kind of mirrors what he was doing at the same time when he was my age in skiing so that's really a, a, a cool thing yeah that is that is interesting that you kind of you you started and you did a lot of collaboration mm-hmm. kind of in his field but you've benefited from that but then you also get to have your own thing and he got to see a lot of this evolve right yeah yeah so it's it is what it is and as i someone told me right after it happened we all everyone loses their parents eventually it's just some sometimes it's sooner than others so it was always going to happen and where we were in our lives and our relationship it was you know never good but better now than it could have been i guess your wife katie you mentioned is very supportive of all of the work that you do what what does she what is her big passion in her life uh she does a lot of dance her her she's a scientist for a company called envirologics um and that's her day job but she does a lot of dance and and fitness instruction she teaches uh zumba and booty yoga in portland at a couple different places and she's deeply involved with vivid motion which is the nonprofit uh dance group here in portland that does the nutcracker burlesque every year um at the St. Lawrence Art Center, which is kind of a tradition on the east end of Portland. Um, so, so those are her big things right now. So it sounds like you, both of you, have this very kind of interesting creative side and this very interesting linear side. And both of you have that. Yeah, it yeah, that might a, explain something about why we got together. <laughs> well, and it probably explains something about why you've been able to support one another and and in your lives yeah yeah she and i have both been very understanding of each other's very long hours um for her it's often early in the morning either going into work or teaching early morning fitness classes and when i'm working on stuff for the store it tends to be very late in the evening that it's keeping me there um but it's a relationship that really works well we both love to cook and are don't love to but are fairly obsessed with keeping the house clean so if one of us is home we know we can do it and rely on the other one to do it when we aren't there so it it works really well well i know this is a very busy time for you so i feel like i'm quite blessed that you were able to run down here and do this interview with us and at the last minute so of course yeah even that's even better um but i i love what you're doing i have since you just opened, I haven't had a chance to go up there, but I will very soon because I love bookstores and, and I'll be there. I'll probably be haunting you guys. I've been speaking with I Josh. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I've been speaking with Josh Christie, who is the co-owner of Print, a bookstore, and also an author in his own right. He lives in Yarmouth with his wife, Katie. Thanks so much for coming in. And I encourage people to um, spend a little time in your bookstore. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.
experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobsterman bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. Today it is my pleasure to have with me in the studio Amy and James Harder, who opened Float Harder Relaxation Center, a three-tank float center in Portland earlier this year. They first learned about floating in sensory deprivation tanks while living in Colorado and realized its potential for improving well-being. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. I know you had to actually close your center just to come do this with us today. So I, I feel very special, like <laughs> that I'm depriving other people of relaxation out there. So no, you know, no. well, hopefully this will spread the news and like it'll make up for the relaxation that a few individual people wouldn't have gotten for a couple hours. We're happy to be a part of this, and it'll help get the word out about floating. So. Well, so let's talk about floating. I'm, I had the opportunity to float yesterday, and um, I, it was really unlike anything that I've done before. It's, I, don't, I don't know that many people who have um, had the opportunity to, to experience this. Well, uh, as words getting out, we're having more and pe- more people come and experience floating, and and people are loving it. Uh, inside the float tanks, there's 10 inches of water with a thousand pounds of Epsom salt dissolved into it, and the water and the air heated to 93.5 degrees, which is the average temperature of the outer layer of skin, and that makes it to where after a while of laying there, you really have a hard time determining where your body ends and the water and air begin. And uh, inside our tanks, there's a nice colored light and also some speakers built in so you can have a nice light, listen to some music, or if you choose to, you can turn it all off and it's completely dark, completely silent, and just a great way for your mind and your body to relax. It's really just this unique environment. When do you ever get to lay peacefully suspended, um, almost weightless? You could have complete darkness, complete silence. It's just like peace and quiet yeah no place on earth so it seems like this is something that we we actually need more and more in this day and age and it's really some of it is um that we've become really connected in a in a in a good way and then also in a way like okay now we can't turn it off but you can't be connected if you're in the float tank i mean you're connected but you're connected with yourself and your mind and the water yeah, and that's making about a, it. a deep self-connection is so important and like you said we're so constantly bombarded with stimulation these days you know just uh, having your phone in your hand so much of the day so many people do it and just putting someone in a float tank for 90 minutes you know uh, most people don't go 90 waking minutes without checking their Facebook or their Instagram so just that kind of separation from uh, the rest of the world is really great for you so so you were in Colorado when you first experienced floating. Yes. Yeah. We were just looking for a place to have a massage, and we found a spa that had a couple of float tanks. 
And we thought, what is this? So we did a little bit of internet research and... Uh, it sounded great. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we booked a couple sessions and went down to Denver and tried floating and fell in love with it. And then uh, in 2013, we came back home to Maine to hike the Appalachian Trail. And after we finished that, we really wanted a place to float. And there was no commercial float center. There were a couple people who had float tanks in their homes that they would rent out uh, when it was possible for them. And uh, we wanted something to make it really accessible to everyone all the time. So uh, we started doing some research and worked really hard and saved every penny we could scrounge up and started a float center. So, Yeah, your center is really, um, it's really impressive. It's um, very modern and clean and um, peaceful and up to date and I mean it's it's really a, I can tell that you've put a lot of thought and a lot of kind of blood sweat and tears <laughs> into this place thank you a lot you. of sleepless nights we put a lot of time <laughs> <laughs> into it and what we're trying to do is make floating seem inviting um in so many people are nervous to try floating. It's really just the unknown. Once they're there and they're in the experience, they're very comfortable with it. Um, but we find that making this beautiful, inviting environment just kind of helps to calm the nerves when people see the size of the float tanks and how everything's clean and tidy. I think it helps. Cleanliness is, uh, you know, such an important factor. You know, um, other than people's concerns about claustrophobia, cleanliness is the next question that we're always asked. You know, how are the tanks clean? Do you change out the water every time? And of course we don't because there's a thousand pounds of Epsom salt in there. So in order to, to change out the water every time, it would cost a couple thousand dollars for a float. And we could only do three every two days because that's how long it takes for the salt to melt. Um, but in between float sessions, the water does go through a really intense triple filtration process goes through a UV light filter, an ozone infusion filter, and also a one micron carbon filter. In addition to all that, it's treated with hydrogen peroxide for a constant antibacterial agent, and with a thousand pounds of Epsom salt in there, it's a really inhospitable environment for anything. So yeah, we, we take cleaning very seriously. This morning, uh, we did our, our weekly deep clean where we closed down for four hours from 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. once a week, and scrub the walls, the insides of the float tanks, the outsides of the float tanks, every little bit of grout in between the tiles. So yeah, we, we take ser uh, cleaning real seriously there. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, that, that's in, it's an interesting thing that you're talking about, that we're willing to go to, a, to the Y and go swimming in the swimming pool. We're willing to go where everybody else also swims. You know, we're willing to go to the local, to the lake mm -hmm. where we have like uh, algae and fish and other people and, and the ocean and and yet if you're going to be in a float tank all by yourself you want it to be clean pristine yeah, yeah. but you have people before they even go in like when i went to float yesterday i mean in a very in the nicest way possible you made it very clear like people who go in the float tanks they need to be clean so <laughs> we take a shower so you ask people not to wear makeup or lotion or any sort of products themselves and then you actually take a shower before you get in there and you don't put anything else on your skin and once you get in there you're you're as clean as you're going to be so it sounds like it's it's really probably the cleanest situation that any of us are actually going to be in anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think that because floating is such a new concept to people, when they first um, 
hear about the idea they don't naturally relate it to pools or spas I think the first thing they think of because it involves Epsom salt is taking a bath and um, you don't want to necessarily take a bath that somebody else has been in and they you know are just unaware of the filtration and all the cleaning that you know all the measures that we do to make sure that the water is clean and safe um, but I think it's just their initial reaction is that it's bath water. <laughs> and Epsom salts are really, really great for health. I mean, this is something that I think our grandparents for knew sure. about and great-grandparents. And I, I, on a regular basis, I tell my patients that they should be doing Epsom salt soaks. So I love the fact that if you go to your place, here it is. It's all, it's all ready. Yeah. And you get the benefit of it's magnesium salt. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's so good for muscles and relaxation and skin for nerves and, and skin. And exactly. Yeah. So it's not just the floating in the water it's also the healing power of these salts for sure there's three basic components to why floating is so good for you Um, the first one is just eliminating gravity without the stress of gravity on our bodies we really have a chance to to rest and recover helps with natural alignment of the spine and uh, you know we don't realize how much energy our minds and our bodies spend just combating gravity every day just to walk around on two feet uh, you know we're constantly dealing with gravity and then the next one is uh, a sensory reduced environment Uh, again if you turn off the lights and the music inside the tank and it's so completely dark it's just a it's it's a great way for your nervous system to get a chance to just slow down and uh, not have the fight or flight idea going on and then the third one is like you said the the magnesium and the epsom salt there we talked about cleanliness and claustrophobia is obviously something that people are concerned about and i was able to be in a more of a float room actually and i chose that specifically because claustrophobia for me is is a little bit of an issue it's not huge Um, but it's nice that you have in addition to these pods, which are basically like giant clamshells, which are somewhere around seven feet yep. long. Yeah, yep. the interior dimension, seven feet by four feet. Yep. So those are already pretty big, but then you also have these rooms, yeah. which are like kind of like being in a big closet. Yeah, or kind of like a sauna. The interior dimensions of the float room, it's eight feet long by four and a half feet wide and seven feet tall. So it's like stepping into a big cube and yeah, plenty of room for very large people. <laughs> I chose it more. <laughs> I, I didn't choose it because of my largeness, although I guess I'm tall enough. But, yeah. um, but I, what I liked was it didn't, like, just in case I had this weird feeling that things are closing in on me, that it really wasn't. Like, your ceiling on that particular room is very tall. But I found that it actually, over time, I was able to kind of get used to... I chose darkness, and I was able to kind of get used to the darkness. And you provided, um, I think you have somewhere around six or eight different types of music that people can choose from, or their own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I chose the um, the concentration music because I have something I have to work on to write. So I found that that was really also interesting, that I'm still connected with, like, the outside with this music that I'm listening to. But it's also, um, there's really this just me and my thoughts. So it's... It must be interesting for you to see people when they go in versus when they come out. It is really fun. Um, People come in and they're nervous um, and curious and they have lots of questions and they're sort of at the regular pace, which is go, 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 go. (laughs) And then they come out of their flow and whether they realize it or not, um, they almost appear sedated. And Lightly sedated. Yeah, yeah. They're just moving slower. They're um, telling us about their float, and it's in this really thoughtful, 
just it's just at a slower pace <laughs> and uh, we usually recommend that people sit in the lounge after and have a cup of tea and not just rush right back out into it and kind of reflect on how their body's feeling after the float and how they're feeling mentally yeah yeah and it, and it definitely has that it is a very kind of soothing environment even outside the float tanks you have people come in and they take off their shoes and the way that you interact is very kind of calming and, and yeah. you do have the nice homegrown tea yeah. um which we heard about from your podcast which is excellent <laughs> which i love because the um i love tea so obviously if you have the right kind of tea it's going to even be more <laughs> likely that i'm going to show up and do this again um and then you also have some lovely books and some very comfortable furniture and you also it seemed like really nice people that come in and do this with you we get so many really cool people um we've, we when we moved to maine or to portland we really didn't know anyone we, we knew a few family members in the area but other than that we didn't know anyone and we've got to meet so many friendly fun people and really feel like part of a community here and, and that's been a lot of fun walking down the street now and bumping into people that we know and just yeah it's really really great but floating uh, does attract a really thoughtful group of people, people who want to experience, uh, you know, altered states of consciousness or who want to, you know, just better themselves in one way or another, whether it's physically or mentally. We have a lot of athletes that come and float with us. Um, it's a great way for uh, recovering after a hard training session and just so many other reasons. Yeah, yeah we find that the people that come to float they really want to be there so they're really excited about the experience and it just ends up being a really nice feeling inside the float center everybody's happy to be there and that's that's actually really important because how often do we get an injury and then feel like oh no now i have to go to the doctor and i have to deal with this horrible thing and and you're talking about okay here's the opportunity to relax and to be healed and to recenter and and i think that you know to make that conscious decision to give yourself that time is big and not something that everybody wants to do yeah and, uh, you know, most everyone who comes through the door is excited to be there. Occasionally we get someone who may have been tricked or not told what they were getting <laughs> into. And that's really fun to watch play out. We, we've had some, uh, some kind of burly, tough-looking guys come in who have either been brought in by their, their wife or their daughter. And, and you can tell they're just not impressed to be there. But after their float, they come out and they say, you know, that was actually really great. And, and it's good to just give people an environment that is comfortable and is someplace where you can just kind of drop the whole tough guy act and just take care of yourself and, and enjoy some peace and quiet. So even people who don't know that they want to float end up realizing that there's something for them to gain from it. We've had some people that were really apprehensive and would even look at their partner and say, are we here for you or for me? You know, because it was like a birthday surprise or something. And um, they come back on their own after, <laughs> you know. Those are, those are really fun. Now, you both have a Vassalboro connection. I know, Amy, you grew up there. Yes. And James, your grandparents live next to Amy? Yeah, they live around the corner. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. I wonder how many people in Vassalboro, when you say... We created a float center. I, I, I wonder how many people in Vassalboro like are like, okay, like that seems maybe a little less than mainstream, but we're gonna roll with it. What have people's responses been? 
people were really supportive um, in a strange way. They they didn't, uh, you know, in not unlike Portland up there, no one had heard of floating. Even when we first moved down here and we started talking to people about it, maybe one in 20 people would have had any idea what we were talking about. Whereas now, if we tell people about floating, it's usually like one in three or four has, goes, oh yeah, I've heard of that, or know someone who's tried it, but yeah. So when we first uh, started talking about floating in Central Maine, the typical reaction was, what? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> or do you think that's going to be a lucrative business? So they were open to the idea, but cautiously so. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, is part of the reason why we came to do it here in Portland, where there's a lot of people who are wellness-minded, you know, people who are training for marathons and, and competing in Ironmans and doing yoga and Pilates and just wanting to take care of themselves. And uh, there's definitely people like that in Central Maine as well, but we kind of wanted to be around a larger population of people with that mindset. Well, maybe uh, you can have the Float Harder 2 Center be <laughs> up in the Vassalboro area <laughs> once you've been a raging success down in the Portland area. <laughs> that would be great. So, James, you have a background with the Army. And actually, your father was also in the military. Yeah, my, my stepdad was in the Army, and my father was in the Navy, and my sister was in the Army, and my little brother's going to enlist in the Navy. We're a pretty military-minded family. Uh, I joined the Army straight out of high school. I actually finished my senior year of high school in Germany and it was so much fun to be there and I joined the army so that I could stay there. So I came back to the States for basic training in AIT and then got stationed right back in Germany and did that for a few years and got out and continued traveling around and hiking out in Colorado and back here on the East Coast just kind of wandering around. And yeah. So when you were doing that, did you have any sense that opening a float center might be in your future? I had never even heard of floating. Um, the The biggest thing I had thought about wanting to do when I got out of the Army, uh, one of my best friends gave me a book about hiking the Appalachian Trail, and I read that, and that was what I wanted to do when I got out. So uh, I went to work out in Colorado for a while and saved some money and then came back to the East Coast and just hiked little sections of it here and there. And, did some other hitchhiking and backpacking around and had a great summer and then re-met Amy that summer. We'd known each other when we were kids but hadn't seen each other in about a decade and, uh, and then we got back together and then in uh, 2013 we hiked the Appalachian Trail in its entirety together. So, so what was that like Amy? Well <laughs> it was one of the toughest things I've ever done. Uh, I didn't really even have an interest in doing it when James and I got together about eight years ago, he was talking about the Appalachian Trail and how it was one of his dreams to complete the whole thing. And I was like, all right, well, you go. And then he started saving money for it and the time was getting close. He was going to be leaving. And I thought, well, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mostly did it out of stubbornness, <laughs> just like not wanting to quit. Um, but it was fantastic. It turned out to be one of the best summers of my life. So you have a history then of doing difficult things together. So <laughs> we do. You, yeah. I mean, this is I th which I think is great. I mean, a lot of couples they don't they don't kind of test themselves the way that you have already tested yourself with the Appalachian Trail and now opening this brand new business, which is very innovative. 
So how's it going so far? It's great. Uh, I think it's really important to, to test yourself and, and to, to accomplish goals together. And we've got to, to do a lot of that. And I uh, think that we learn a lot about how to work with each other through, <laughs> <laughs> through these challenging circumstances that we put ourselves in. And uh, it definitely brings us closer. I mean, we, on the Appalachian Trail, we, we saw each other at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Uh, I got Lyme's disease, Amy got a MRSA infection, uh, <laughs> got a couple of different uh, different bad things that came down on us, but uh, you know, we helped each other through it and recovered and just kept on going and, and then completed when you our see journey. A problem in the future, you kind of look back on what you've tackled and it's like, yeah. we got this. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Well, that said, starting the business was definitely another very trying adventure. Um, it's been it's been difficult, but we've we've had the opportunity to work with some really great people along the way. Uh, the lender we work with from Bangor Savings, a score counselor from that organization. Uh, we've had a lot of a lot of support, and it's been fantastic. Is it scary to do something that hasn't been done on this scale in Maine? Um, I think it was initially, but uh, the response already is is really positive, and and. I don't know. We love it, and we get to float pretty regularly. So you know that definitely helps with our own anxiety and our own stress. So it was intimidating, but the way we looked at it is that we were just going to put our all into it, make it the nicest experience that we could for people, and give the best customer service possible, and hope it works. Because I mean, at that point, you're invested. <laughs> really, we kind of thought, you know, we're in our early 30s. If this doesn't work out, we got some time to bounce back from it. So, <laughs> Yeah, we were pretty unhappy with what we were doing with our lives before. <laughs> and we figured it could only end up back in that same situation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting way to look at it. Like, it, it can't get worse it could just stay the same so that's actually really that's a really interesting uh, perspective although i suppose it would be worse yeah, with the debt yeah, <laughs> be paying off a mountain of debt well you're not it's not going to be worse because this is going to be very successful i can tell um amy what did you what was your background it's where you weren't military no i got a teaching degree um in Connecticut and then when we moved out west I thought maybe I could find a teaching job out there but it was just really challenging to break into that industry and I ended up never using it so I was bartending for the past seven or eight years and uh, it just wasn't very fulfilling it was, it's certainly fun and um, it's you know fast money and it, it leads to a flexible lifestyle but it's nothing it's nothing that I wanted to do until I w was 40 or <laughs> it probably helped you with your customer service um, skills I would think because it seems like that's the type of thing that you have to be very good at if you're gonna be a bartender long term yeah I certainly did learn how to interact <laughs> with people and even in their altered states and keep everything calm and so that's actually really interesting now that you used to deal with altered states as a result of alcohol, now you deal with altered <laughs> states as a result of 
the magnesium salt water. This is much more pleasant. <laughs> and it's not till three in the morning. Right. But you do. I was really um, impressed with you have very long hours. And what I love is that you can actually book online so you can see what tanks are available. And you have hours that go, I think, as early as six in the morning and into the evening. How the late are you open? The last float begins at 8 p.m. And the first one starts at six. So uh, the reason for that is that people love floating at all different times of the day. Some people like to come float before they go to work, just kind of start their day in a real centered, positive mindset. And then other people like it at the end of a hard day to just go home and relax after their float and drift off to sleep and everywhere in between. And you're actually open six days a week. Yeah, we're closed on Wednesdays. But other than that, we're ready to get you floating as much as possible. You also have, James, a, um, a northern Maine connection. You, I understand that you were up in the Greenville area over Thanksgiving? We were, yeah, just outside of Greenville in Shirley, Maine. My uh, grandparents have a camp that they built when I was a kid, and my grandmother and my grandfather have been hunting up there since they, they built the place, and he passed away a couple years ago, and now I get to go up there and go hunting with my grandmother and keep her company out in the woods. And it's just a, it's been a, a magical place for me ever since I was a kid, playing with wooden swords and, and amongst the trees to now just getting to, to spend time with family and relax by the fire. It's just a great place to be. It's one of my favorite places on the planet. It's great because there's very little cell phone reception. <laughs> so even though we were just there for one day, it was nice to not be dealing with technology and just sit by the fire and kind of slow down a little. It's funny we're offering this sensory deprivation service <laughs> to the community, but running a business we're finding is so much overload, <laughs> sensory overload. And yeah, well, especially in these early, in the early stage where you probably do a lot of the stuff yourself. We try to do as much as possible. Amy's been doing a lot of the graphic design work, the the web development work. Um, we try to do most of the marketing ourselves or work with people like here at this publication and um, just figuring it out as we go. You know, neither of us have any real background in business, so just kind of learning on the fly and having fun with it. But it's, it's really great to just always have something more to keep learning. So It's interesting when you describe nature and being that's a place where you can sort of let go and relax and Maine is really known for that I mean when you get out of the middle of the city you really have access to <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's sensory deprivation but it's definitely this expansiveness and it's the same type of thing that you're describing when you get inside a float tank but you're there's sort of two opposite ways of providing them in for nature sure. you have like birds and grass and leaves and trees and things like that and in your float tanks you have it's just the water and the person and and the tank itself. So I think Maine is kind of Maine is a place where people do actually come for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's a great way of looking at it. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, people definitely do like to have the solitude and the the relaxed state here in Maine. So yeah, I guess what we offer really goes hand in hand with what a lot of people are seeking. So what are your hopes for the next year? as a brand new business and putting something out there in the world. Um, what, what do you want to see happen? I want to see as many people come in and float as possible and not just for the, you know, financial <laughs> compensation of it, but just to, to see the, 
the look on people's faces and uh, another reason that a lot of people come and float with us is for chronic pain relief and we've had people come out of the tank and tell us that um, right after they're floating or during their float or for a couple weeks after is the first time that they've been without uh, their pain and to, to be able to see that in people is is just so so wonderful it makes all the long hours so worth it mm. so yeah I want to see a lot of people floating and spreading the word and enjoying it. And Amy, do you think that the the teaching background, and I understand you didn't use your teaching certificate or background, but do you think that this has had some positive impact on your ability to educate people about floating? I think so. That and my, um, my customer service skills, I feel like um, it takes a lot to get somebody through their first float. There's a lot of little details that can make your float much better. <laughs> uh, for example, just keeping the salt water out of your eyes and mouth. It's <laughs> really not a pleasant experience. So uh, yes, absolutely. We, we need to educate people on how to float and how to enjoy their float so that they'll be interested in trying it again to experience the cumulative benefits of floating. And yeah, absolutely, my background has helped to shape how we run our business. So if you have any idea that you might want to do this, then probably the best thing to do is to maybe look on the website, maybe give you a call, For and sure. then if there are some things that medically might disqualify you, then have that conversation with your healthcare provider. But it doesn't sound like there's too many different things that are going to keep people from floating. No, usually what we tell them if they do have medical questions is that, you know, talk to your doctor. You're going to be laying in about a thousand pounds of magnesium sulfate in warm water. We tell them the temperature and then they can just discuss that with their healthcare provider and make an informed decision that way. Because we're just people that own float tanks <laughs> <laughs> well and I you know as a doctor uh, there's not there aren't too many different things that I can think of that would keep people from doing it because it seems like a pretty uh, even somebody asked me well what happens if you fall asleep will you drown and uh, I, I can't see that happening because you're so buoyant it's like floating in the dead sea the salt content is so high that and your body would just wake you up anyway Falling Absolutely. asleep is perfectly safe. Uh, sometimes I get in there and sleep overnight in the float tanks, um, which is really fun. Have crazy dreams. Just it's a, it's a great experience. But because you are so supported, if you do fall asleep, you won't roll over because there's nothing to really push off of. Um, you'd really have to try to roll over. And if you did roll over, you're going to get that salt water in your nose and your eyes, and it's going to wake you up pretty quick. Um, Inside the tanks, we do have a, a fresh uh, a spray bottle full of fresh water for those inadvertent situations. But uh, you can rinse it with rinse your eyes with that, and then you're all set to go again. Well, very good. I hope people will take advantage of uh, floating in the in your Float Harder Relaxation Center. We've been speaking with Amy and James Harder, who opened the Float Harder um, earlier this year in Portland. I really wish you all the best. I will be back again awesome. looking for those flashes of insight and maybe the chance to cross the country in my own <laughs> Winnebago. So, so thank you for coming in and for providing this to us. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 273, Read and Relax. Our guests have included Josh Christie and Amy and James Harder. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. 
We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Name Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Name Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Read and Relax show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.